This has been an extraordinary year filled with too many stresses to count. It's important to your health and to those around you to check in with yourself and others to make sure everyone is okay. This holiday season can be especially stressful, but remember that you don't have to go through any of this alone. There are folks who support you and want to see you okay so that we all come out on the other side of this together. Don't forget that, and don't be afraid to speak up if you need a hand. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. This week, I'm talking about 25 years of brewing and lessons learned with Hugh Sisson, the founder of Heavy Seas Brewing in Baltimore. From recipe evolution to distributor decisions, along with an affinity for cask ale, and while he still stays connected to consumers, we'll get into it all. Up first, though, Sean Sasser is the director of Brewing at Cigar City, which is this episode's sponsor, and we're talking everybody's favorite native of your state, Sean, Florida man. And it's a it's a double IPA, and and I'm curious as to why you've seen success in the double IPA category, and how Florida Man fits into that. Well, I think people have really come around to double IPAs because, as opposed to before, when it was just a higher ABV and that usually meant more multi, there's a lot more hops and a lot more drinkability in these double IPAs these days. So you're getting more of a bang for your buck, and Florida Man definitely fits into that with the amount of hops that we put into it. And the uh, the yeast and hop expression, it's it's definitely you get your money's worth. So tell us what hops are you using? You mentioned yeast, so let's get into that a little bit as well. Sure. So we are using uh, London Three as our yeast, and we're using a blend of Citra, Azaka, and Eldorado as our hops. And as far as flavor profiles go, when you crack one open, what can we expect? So first off, you're going to get a big hit of pineapple followed by a little bit of mango rind and then some tangerine definitely a lot of citrus notes it's uh not very bitter despite its 50 ibus and it's definitely drinkable but with enough malt, enough malt character to kind of back it up sean will be back with us towards the end of the program but i'll remind everybody that you should go to cigarcitybrewing.com where you can learn more about florida man and find out where you can get it near you I'm both excited and bummed to have Hugh Sisson, the founder of Heavy Seas Beer, on the show today. I'm excited because Hugh is a thoughtful, engaging, and dynamic figure in beer who has worked tirelessly to foster and grow an industry and has been a mentor for many. I'm bummed because I had hoped to do this interview in person. But, you know, COVID. And it's likely better to be apart because if I was at the brewery, I'd likely have one too many pints of IPA. Hugh has been in beer a lot longer than most, with Heavy Seas and a brew pub named Sissons before that. He and his dad successfully worked to get state legislation changed to make professional brewing easier in Maryland, and he continues to stay involved and to be an advocate for an industry he cares deeply about. This week, the brewery, officially licensed as Clipper City, but going under the Heavy Seas name, turns 25. It's an odd year to have a milestone birthday, but the brewery is continuing its tradition of releasing a big, boozy monster of an ale, and we'll talk about that as well on the show. Hugh's also looking forward to reopening the tap room when it's safe to do so. A few years back, when I was on a book tour, I did a signing at Heavy Seas for a few hours, and I watched as happy patrons came in for pints and a tour. Hugh led several of these tours himself and would start off with a very specific reading. Since he hasn't had an audience for a while, I thought it would be good to let him stretch those muscles. Here's our conversation. I appreciate you doing this, and before we start, I wonder if you'd lead us in a prayer. Oh, okay. Well, this is um, um, this is predicated on the fact that for me, beer has always been sort of a spiritual thing. Dear friends, we are gathered here today to celebrate the union of malt, hops, Water and yeast, let us pray. Our lager, which art in barrels, thou will be consumed at the heavy seas beer event. Give us, give us this day our foamy heads, and forgive us our spillages, as we forgive those who spill against us. And lead us not into incarceration, hell no, but deliver us from hangovers. For thine is the beer, the foam, and the lace, forever and ever, barmen. <laughs> well, thank you, Reverend. You're welcome. 
I I remember taking the tour years ago and you standing in front of a room of people who were just there to to drink beer who were giddy about taking a brewery tour and this must be a decade ago if not more at this point right. and uh you belting that out to the uh shock and amusement and then uh a just general um i guess enthusiasm for for all the folks taking taking a a a, a brewery tour you all haven't done those in a in a good little bit i no, imagine no we haven't done we haven't done brewery tours since March um, with the you know, advent of COVID chaos. Um, and I'm, for us, the, the, I mean, we closed our tap room and that hasn't been open either. You know, 90 plus percent of our business is to wholesalers and we needed to do everything we could to, to not have traffic coming in and out of the building to minimize that, to, to lower exposure for our production staff because if they go down, we have we have a heap of uh, hurt. Yeah. When so ninety percent's going out the door. Um, did you ninety ninety five? Okay. Did you see a change in consumer habits in those first oh, couple hell, of months? Hell yeah, and they're still they're continuing. I mean the um, I mean cans were emerging anyway, but the can business has completely blown up which is also now beginning to trigger all of this uh, aluminum can shortage. But um, so the can business completely blew up our larger format packages, 12 packs and especially 12 pack mix packs, sampler packs um, <clears throat> blew up. And of course they are the most labor intensive packages that we have. So, yeah, so it, it we kind of got caught a little bit flat footed. I, I don't think we were alone vis-a-vis -vis our peers. Mm -hmm. Um so, and we, we struggled, frankly, during some of the, uh, you know, the peak season in, in June, July, and August, trying to keep up with those uh, packages just because, the you know, it just blew up. Didn't see that one coming. And as far as what people were buying, though, was it... Mm -hmm. I, I heard from a lot of brewers of, of, of your size and with regional scope, um, the larger the pack, the better. Um, yes. But did you see well, a change in what people were buying? Were they buying more session beers? Were they thinking heavier to get through the hard times? What was... There was, there was not so much a shift to either lighter beers or heavier beers. Definitely, there was a shift to uh, to the larger format, twelve packs as opposed to six packs. Um, the The interesting thing that I, that I don't think I'm alone in seeing this, though, is that there seems to be a little bit of of a consumer return to core, as opposed to you know the throwing the spaghetti against the wall. And I think that has to do with the fact that you know you're spending whatever you're spending to buy. Uh, uh, a, a six pack or a 12 pack of, of beer. And in these uncertain times, people are kind of saying, you know, well, I know that's good. So our loose cannon and the bells too hearted and clearly Sierra and new Belgium and dogfish, et cetera, all benefited from, from that with our core brands, which, uh, you know, in, in the year leading up to this had sort of been suffering a little bit because the focus was so much on, on innovation. Yeah. Um, and the, the problem with innovation is, you know, it's not tried and true. And I think as, you know, people get a little spooked financially, et cetera, you're going to part with whatever you're parting with. You want to make sure it's good. Have you, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'm trying to think of the, the, the <laughs> right uh, vein to mine. But when you're thinking about core beers, let, let's start there because over the 25 years, and that's one of the reasons that we're speaking today is because your brewery is about to celebrate a quarter century of, of being open and around. Um, you've changed what the core beers have been. You know, I think of some of the other breweries from your, uh, you know, that you're cut from the same cloth where they've had you know, the same beers all along and they've been, you know, comfortable with that. But you've mm -hmm. changed things up over over the course of your 25 years. So sure. So what's core now versus what core was or well, even what you hoped I mean, it would be early on? When we, when we started the company 25 years ago, and I think this was true across the board for craft brewers in general, 
you know, from a, from a marketing standpoint, all you had to be was not one of the macros. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the year that we opened the door, which was 95, um, you know, the year that we did that is the year that all of a sudden craft beer went flat for the first wave. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> so all of a sudden, you, you know, you couldn't, all this off the wall, crazy stuff wasn't, wasn't working in the market anymore. So, so we opened as Clipper city brewing company and I clearly figured out quickly figured out that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to, to, to do the, you know, uh, the river is a mile wide and an inch deep approach where you, you ship beer to 40 States and you know, you've got no market presence in any of them. Sure. It worked um, for rogue for a while, but yeah, it worked. It worked for a, a whole lot of breweries for a long time up until about 95, 96. Um, but that wasn't going to happen. So all of a sudden, you know, we needed to find a way to survive pretty much shipping everything we were going to do within, um, you know, a uh, uh, 150 mile radius of our location. Um, well, Baltimore was still pretty much a macro beer town at that stage. So I had to make my Clipper city brand be much more aligned with sort of more mainstream style beers. Uh, and we executed them well, but that's kind of what Clipper city began to mean. Um, and then what happened was, um, about 2000, excuse me. Yeah. 2000, 2001, uh, the craft market began to come back. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that from a, from a marketing standpoint, we needed to, we couldn't begin to market more exciting beers under the Clipper city brand because that was already established with sort of one concept. Um, so we created heavy seas as our brand for our more adventurous, higher ABV products and rolled that out, um, in 2001 or two, I can't remember the exact year now. Right. Um, and then that was so successful that in 2010, we, we eliminated the Clipper city brand as a brand and focused everything under the name heavy seeds. Our lead product in that was uh, our IPA called loose cannon, um, which is a pretty well-respected product and, and sort of like what, um, uh, what stone did where they had arrogant bastard and double bastard and blah, blah, blah we kind of made the cannon crew our focus. Um, so we had double cannon, loose cannon. We introduced our citrus IPA a couple of years ago, tropic cannon, uh, and we're adding a hazy <laughs> version of it. Um, uh, we're rolling that out now. So the cannon crew really is our core and that represents probably 80 plus percent of our total volume. Those four SKUs or yeah. four, four products. Wow. Um, and then, but you still got to maintain a certain level of innovation. Um, so we, we installed a, a 15 barrel brew house about two years ago specifically so we could do new product development, test them in the tap room and begin to get, you know, a little more excitement because, you know, the one thing that, that you need to do if you're in consumer products, unless for some reason you are, you are just absolutely amazingly brilliant or absolutely amazingly lucky is you need to be willing uh, to reinvent yourself from time to time. So we went through a logo change in the last couple of years. Um, and we're really working on, on a lot more innovation, which will start to, to drift in in the course of 2021 and 2022. Um, I'm curious, though, because there are customers who hate change, and there's certainly business owners who hate change. Right. Um, but you've seen the benefit in in this reinventing yourself as you've gone, you know, as you've gone through this, right? I mean, well, it could so, have I been mean, easier to keep Clipper City. It could have been easy to, you know. Yeah, but it, but if we if we if we if we'd stood on our laurels, I don't think that's the right way to say that. But yeah. but if if we had done that, um, you lose relevance. Um, you know, and whether your innovation is in terms of branding and marketing or whether your innovation is in terms of product development. Um, the other thing you got to keep in mind is that, the, the you know, 25 years ago, when when 30 years ago, when all of this sort of began to occur, uh, the target consumer uh, was in their 
20s. All right. Well, that same consumer who's who's made this industry an industry is now in their 50s and 60s. Yeah. Uh, and, and you don't drink as much beer when you're in your 50s and 60s as you did when you were in your 20s. So if all we did was continue to do the same thing, eventually our core customer base is going to get stop drinking beer. Um, so, so you have part of the innovation and part of the rebranding and the marketing has to be focused on that younger consumer, um, which, you know, the millennials are, are tough to read. So I think that's, that's part of the driver there is, is that, you know, how do you stay relevant? And, uh, the only way I know to stay relevant is you keep throwing some spaghetti against the wall. And then when you find something that sticks, you just keep working on that. I was talking with somebody recently and we were kind of going back and forth on how the craft beer industry, what we're calling it now as craft beer, um, is really still in its adolescence in, in the grand scheme of things and 40 mm -hmm. years in. Um, but even looking back, you know, 30 plus years ago, you were working to change state laws in order to right. run a brewery, which again, as far as this country and the timeline goes is not all that long. And so, no. yeah. I, I, I guess I'm just sort of curious as to, I, I, it's just a good reminder as to what you were saying though, of, you know, innovation and trying to stay in it because in so many ways, I think folks are still trying to discover themselves or you know, what this industry is going to be. And, you know, regardless of the machinations that are happening right now with hard seltzer and uh, alternative beverages of, of, of all different stripes, I think beer is still trying to, you know, it's still well, very young. It's still very young, but it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because one of the things that's um, challenging but becoming, I think, more and more critical uh, in the craft beer segment is, uh, is the whole concept of innovation versus quality. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Um, there's, there's certainly a, a segment of the consumer market uh, who never, ever, ever drinks the same thing twice. And they and they, they just want to they want to walk into the store or the bar and say, what have I not had before? And they'll drink one and they'll say that was really good or that was really terrible or whatever. And then they go on to something else. And that's part of that's the consumer who's who's made these uh, seltzers, et cetera, so hot. Um, but that's a really challenging consumer. So the way the industry is going to stay relevant, I think in the long term is focusing on what I call quality. Now there's subjective quality, which means, gee, I like, I like vanilla ice cream. <laughs> I don't like chocolate ice cream. Yeah. So therefore chocolate ice cream is bad. Uh, or there is what I call professional quality, which is I made it, you bought it, you liked it. If you go into the store and never want to buy it again, it better be the goddamn same. Mm hmm. And, and that focus on what I call professional quality, which requires, you know, investment in quality controls and lab equipment and all the rest of that stuff. That's really where I think the, the long term um, of the industry as an industry is going and, and needs to go. <clears throat> um, part of the problem with the 5,000 uh, guys who opened up in the last five years is that that kind of quality is expensive. Um, and very few of them can afford to make the investments in that sort of infrastructure. So that, that concerns me because I don't need people getting bad beer from somewhere and getting turned off to the category. But I still think that over time, as things mature, you know, the industry is, you're right. I think we're in our, in our late adolescence, but as we get into our early twenties, um, uh, to use your metaphor, I, I, I think that the focus is going to have to become more and more on quality. I imagine you've been reflecting over the last quarter century of this brewing venture. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to what you wish you knew now that you would have known back then, or I guess... <laughs> I mean, I mean, what I wish I'd known then. Yes. I now know. Yes. Or vice versa. But yeah. yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> sorry. It's still early, apparently, uh, coming off yeah, of a holiday weekend. Um, yes. It, uh, um, that's a good question. The, I think, 
um, when we fired this thing up 25 years ago, I, I originally was in the brew pub segment. Uh, so that was a direct retail segment. And then when I opened up this production facility, um, you know, my understanding of uh, distribution and retail and chain grocery and all of that was totally minuscule. Um, so that, I mean, that's taken me years to sort of get my head wrapped around that. So if I'd had that information, you know, if I'd understood the, the go-to-market complexities, uh, you know, 25 years ago, it probably would have made my life significantly um, uh, easier. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is um, getting back to access to market is, um, you know, so in the beginning, there were wine and spirits wholesalers and there were uh, Anheuser-Busch wholesalers and Miller Coors wholesalers. Uh, and that was about your only options. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had a guy working for me a couple of years back, uh, who took over in a, in a sales director role and, and he looked at our distribution network and said, well, you've got a, in Virginia, you've got an AB guy, you've got an independent wine, wine guy, you've got a Miller Coors guy over here. This is a really jumble. Um, and, and he said, why did you, why did you set up that way as opposed to going all AB or all Miller Coors or all, you know, independent craft, you know, uh, and, and the point was, and again, if you put this in the context of, of the nineties, uh, you know, I told him we went with the distributors who said yes, <laughs> right? Because they didn't always say yes. Um, and sometimes those relationships didn't work. Uh, so it was just one of those things where if you'd known then, uh, that it's much better if you're sort of in a, uh, in a United network, i.e. all AB or all Miller cores or, or whatever, um, you can, you can get access to certain parts of the market much easier. So that's part of the reason why, um, you know, when, when, uh, um, Sam Adams acquired Dogfish. One of the things that's happened in the last two years is they've tried to merge them all into the same network. Right. So, I'm I'm curious. Distribution aside, and some of even some of the business aside, when you first started, what do you think was the biggest challenge you faced? Well, when we first started 25 years ago, the the biggest challenge that we faced was, um, you know, we're, we're opening this brand new brewery with equipment that, that my brewmaster, nor I, nor anybody on my team had ever run, making products and recipes that none of us had ever made before, going into a distribution system that none of us had any even remote knowledge of, going into retail. Uh, and then, I mean, it, 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 we're, it was so early on in the industry as a whole that you're completely flying blind. You know, I mean, some of the early beer that we made, frankly, wasn't very good or, or didn't have any shelf stability because we didn't know anything about oxygen levels in, in, in packaged beers. Um, so, you know, I think the initial opening, the, the greatest challenge was trying to make sure we had good product to sell. Now, you know, I had had a fair amount of experience on the brew pub side. So, so we were able to get our arms around that reasonably quickly. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it was a great challenge. Um, and I just remember being incredibly frustrated because when, when you, when I, the beer I was making in the brew pub was really good. Mm -hmm. Um, but we didn't have the challenges because the, the beer in your brew pub never leaves your control. Well, virtually everything that I was making when we opened the brewery was leaving my control. And those were variables that I didn't understand at the time. What do you think is the biggest challenge you're facing now? That we're facing now? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that's, that's, and it has to do specifically with, uh, just the explosion of, of the number of breweries is, uh, you know, SKU management. I mean, the, 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 the distributors went through a, a period probably in the 2000s, 2010 to 2015, um, where they were incredibly promiscuous. So if you made it, they bought it. Uh, and then they'd go out and try to sell it. And then after a couple of years of that, 
um, the wholesalers uh, looked up and said, my God, I'm, I'm throwing away a whole lot of out-of-code beer here. Um, so the distributors immediately, and this was right about five years ago now, I think, uh, when pumpkin beer took its first great dump in the market. Yeah. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of cases of pumpkin ale. And everything kind of came to a screeching halt. The, the distributors <laughs> began to sit there and say, hmm, I only want your four products. Yeah. Well, if if I'm shipping to uh, from from Baltimore to Georgia, I get that. But if I'm shipping from Baltimore to another distributor in Maryland or even Pennsylvania uh, or an adjacent territory of Virginia, I, I need you to take more than four SKUs because that's the I need that broad base to to build my brand. So the the distributor rationalization on SKUs. Uh, certainly is one of the key challenges that we face right now. Um, second challenge that we face right now is a whole lot of these really small players are choosing to, um, to sell direct uh, and, and bypassing a wholesaler. And, and while, you know, I commend them for their efforts, um, you know, they're running in and out of accounts and they're, they're cutting deals left, right and center. And, you know, we're going through a traditional wholesale market, which means that, you know, the prices are typically published and that's what you sell for. So, um, it's just, it's just market dynamics. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions anymore. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's the market. Back with you in a flash, but I wanted to offer a quick word of thanks to this episode's sponsor, Cigar City Brewing, makers of Florida Man. It's a modern double IPA with a tropical expression from a blend of American hops, including Citra, Azaka, Eldorado, and Mandarina Bavarian. It's balanced by delicate peach esters from a unique double IPA yeast and a dash of Canadian honey malt. You can learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. You brought up something interesting, though, of pumpkin beers five years ago. Because if, if you go back, let's say, you know, seven, eight years ago... Right. People started paying attention to, you know, Southern Tier was killing it. Dogfish was killing it. I think Buffalo Bill, yep. you know, was. And so everybody said, oh, my gosh, like, I want a piece of that pie. I, I didn't, It's an mm-hmm. unintended pun, but, you know, I want a piece of that. Uh, and so the market was flooded with it. And then I think we've seen it with other styles over the last couple of years. And then certainly with hard seltzer of, you know, a lot of folks rushing hard seltzer uh, into the market to try to compete with white claw and truly and uh, all all of those and i think uh, on a small level a taproom only model it makes sense for breweries to offer that because it's in the consumer consciousness but i i'm curious as to your thoughts on when when to chase a fad or when to sort of stand your own ground or to stake out your own path well i it's it's always better if you stake out your own path because then other people are trying to if it's successful other people are trying to follow you that's that's hard to do um because you know i I mean i'm a relatively creative person but you know i gotta admit there have been a lot, a lot, a lot of times over the last 25 years when I look up and see what somebody's doing, I go, that was a brilliant damn idea. Why the hell didn't I think of that? Um, but for every one of those, there's probably 10 quote unquote brilliant ideas that just completely tanked. Mm-hmm. So, but if you, but if you can, if you can create your own thing, as opposed to chasing uh, a concept, I think that's ultimately better. And I think those companies who uh, do that, more and more consistently, which is really hard. They're the ones who I think sort of really emerge as the thought leaders. Um, the If you're going to chase a concept, then you have to be able to act fast because, you know, I don't know how long, um, you know, hazy IPAs are going to be in the market, um, but it appears as though they're here to stay, but ask me 12 months from now, maybe that's a whole different animal. Sure. Um, well, I mean, you so, were talking earlier on how so many of the, the 5,000 breweries that have opened up in the last couple of years are in this taproom model. I mean, that's where hazy really excels. Yeah. And a lot of that originated because they didn't have any way to filter the beer. <laughs> um, 
Ken Grossman has has made the joke a couple of times that you know his beer was never filtered because they couldn't afford one in the early days, but uh, right. they still let it right. drop clear. Um, one of the the things that I've always liked about your brewery and that we've talked about in in, in previous occasions, though, is uh, a, a shared respect and love for Cascale. Uh-huh. And I know for a while you were working hard to bring that to the people to, to sort of make it an American staple. And yep. it, it just doesn't work here. It just doesn't work in this country for some reason. And unfortunately it's, it's, uh, it's very challenging. And, um, I mean, it's, it, it went from being something that we had a major focus on to being sort of, it's not an afterthought. We still take great pride in the small number of casks that we do, but the, the problem with this country vis-a-vis cask ale is it's cultural um cask beer requires uh, a willingness on the part of the publican or the or the bar owner to handle the product correctly uh and dispense correctly and uh, you know do what you can do to not have the product go off and just very few uh bar owners either understand that or willing to undertake that kind of level of, of, um, of maintenance. And so I think there was a lot of bar owners initially who said, yeah, well, I'll take one of them. And then they just threw it on top of the bar and there's no refrigeration. They're just pumping air into the, into the cask as they're dispensing the product. And when the product goes off two and a half days later, cause they didn't sell it all in one night, like they hoped they would, um, and the beer was awful. Uh, yeah. So, and I, you know, I, I think the bar owners get tired of throwing away a half a barrel and the consumers got tired of having not very good beer. So, so what's happened, I think, is that there has emerged a very small number of highly dedicated publicans who want to do this and do it correctly. And then there's guys like me who are trying to find out who they are so that we can continue to do this labor of love because I still think that's draft beer and it's absolute best um, uh, presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just accept that fact that, you know, sometimes you just don't always get what you want. <laughs> it, it, it just, it's one of those things where it would just be lovely if more places did it right or took care with it. But I also remember it must've been five years now uh, where brewers were starting to get, you know, just silly with it as well. And they were, you know, shoving gummy worms and things or, you know, here's our Cascale Berliner Weiss or, you know, what, and it was just, it wasn't, I don't know. I, I, I think when the consumers were going through, that big change five years ago when we really started to see this accelerated growth, there wasn't a fundamental education that took place for a lot of beer drinkers. Well, well, here, here, I mean, here's part of, I sound like an old man when I'm saying that, but yeah, no, but, but, but I mean, look, we're 25 years in, in this company and I've been doing this for 30 years. So there's a certain amount of historical perspective and things run in cycles. Um, but, but, but here's part of what occurred. Um, in the last five to seven years. Um, so you've got guys like me that have been around for a long time who have established a flagship IPA or a flagship pale ale or, or whatever. Um, and you're opening in my market. Um, and y- you start to brew beer. Well, the, you're going to have a problem because your IPA is already overshadowed by my IPA, if, if you know what I'm saying from mm-hmm. a conceptual standpoint. Yeah. So, so you got to do something different to get noticed, which then led to a lot of products getting, you know, I mean, a, a double peanut porter, triple hopped, you know, jalapeno uh, porters. Line you know. forms to the left. Yeah. Right, and and so and so that has occurred, and. Uh, the, the the interesting thing was, I, as I alluded to earlier, is is that wholesalers were very promiscuous. You know, they'd buy it, and the consumer would buy it, but they only bought it once, um, except with with some notable exceptions. Um, so, I, I, I think things run in cycles. Um, so so it went a little bit to the wacko side, 
And uh, I'm thinking, and, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, about we're seeing sort of the reemergence of, 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 uh, of um, flagship products, mm-hmm. partly. So, so I, I think the pendulum is, is now beginning to swing back a little bit the other way. And we'll see over time whether that's indeed the case. But, you know, I, I mean, I watched the market do what it did in the, in the 90s, the late 90s. And we're seeing that pattern repeating itself again, somewhat exacerbated by COVID. Um, and, you know, I think that in another five years, we're going to see a, a different cycle. So it's, and that's one of the things that's so interesting and fascinating as well as terrifying um, about dealing in the consumer products segment, which is why you have to be willing to reinvent yourself, is because it's, it's never the same. Yeah. As soon as you think you've just invented the, the, the greatest thing since sliced bread, nobody wants to eat bread. Uh, well, it's sort of like brewed IPA. Uh, it didn't even have right. a chance to, to take off. We talked about that on a, right. on a previous show. Um, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your take on this, especially with cycles. So uh, your 25th anniversary beer is simply called 25. It's going to be a uh-huh. double barrel aged strong ale. Uh, with, I guess it's two different barrels that are in there, yeah. and it's uh, sort of a barrel and then a rye barrel. Uh, barley wine like English inspired strong ale is 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 what it's uh, what it's described as in this press release that came, um, and it's going to be for sale in sixteen ounce four packs. Yep. So I have previous. Uh, anniversary bottles of yours uh, sitting in my cellar uh, and <laughs> bottles is the operative word and they're all in 22s. Um, right. Will 22s ever make a comeback? I don't think so. Uh, I, I uh, you know, the, the 22 <laughs> that was a ounce, deep sigh. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I kind of like them, but, but I mean, 22s beginning about six years ago, just were laying eggs on the shelf. Um, and, uh, and again, I think part of it with the with the explosion of all the the the, the newer breweries, you know, it was much cheaper to put product in uh, in in a can format than it was in a bottling format because uh, none of them owned bottling lines, but you could get these mobile canning services. Um, so I think that's what drove that. And just with you know everybody putting out everything they could possibly think of to put out, uh, that's what's driven that four pack. Uh, 16 ounce can um, and I, I think that absolutely killed the 22 um, which is kind of a shame I actually have uh, 20 21 22 23 and 24 although 24 was in cans uh, sitting on a shelf behind me and once I get my I haven't picked up my uh, my 25 yet um, uh, I'm gonna make a weekend of just trying to get through all five of those <laughs> But it, they're strong beers, so it'll take me pretty much the whole weekend. That's uh, yeah. You might want to make that like a long holiday weekend with a <laughs> vacation day built in on the back end of it. You're probably correct. Um, it's you unintentionally set me up for a pretty good segue here. When you're not uh, brewing or hanging out at your brewery, as it were, uh, you are talking about wine and reviewing wine and writing about wine for your local NPR station. Right. And you had a piece up recently on aging wine uh, that, that uh-huh. I really enjoyed listening to because I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of folks who were saying, okay, I'm going to go through my cellar and I'm going to empty out all this stuff. And about a week or so into it, uh, there's a lot of private conversations that were happening on back channels where it's like, boy, I let a lot of things sit for too long and there's, I'm dumping a lot of beer that I should have drank fresh or, you know, how, how, however it was. Um, and you just wrote the same thing about wine recently as yep. well. Um, or yep. talked about it, uh, I should say on, mm-hmm. uh, on, on, on this segment. Um, how much does your love, appreciation, understanding of wine play into your beer side and vice versa. I think they're completely complementary. I mean, the because uh, they, they do seem siloed at times. Like even still out in the world today, you know. And I'm working at Wine Enthusiast as a contributing editor, and you know, it mm-hmm. seems like you know a lot of times the coverage is still in silos. And for you know, even for drinkers, as much as we talk about cross drinkers, there's still people who are very much you know in their beverage lane. Well, see, see, 
there's a book project that I hope to get to, and maybe we can do this together. Uh, there's a book project that I hope to get to uh, when I ever, if ever, I begin to cut back a little bit, which I want to call the Wine Lover's Guide to Beer. Um, and I think that you you can explore some, you know, so so what what is the what is the beer quote unquote equivalent of a Chardonnay or a Syrah or 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 and I, I just think that there's some things where we could build cross references to help m- merge these compute these these consumer bases. Understanding, of course, the the demographic differences because beer consumption clearly is younger demographic, and wine consumption is a, a lot more uh, older demographic. Um, but I also think, well, I, I agree with you that there's a little bit of a silo factor there. I, I, I just personally think that. You know, my my love and passion for beer has uh, improved my ability to uh, to appreciate good wine and vice versa. Um, so it's to me, it all comes down to when when you're buying good wine or you're buying good beer, what you're ultimately paying for is complexity of flavor profile. And that's interesting because it, it gives you something to do other than slake your thirst. Yeah. Um, and. And I think both of those beverages, and you can say the same thing for, uh, you know, for good spirits as well. Uh, it's just it it's it's it adds another dimension to life that I think can can add pleasure other than the alcoholic kick. Um, that you know, I'm sorry, but you only go around once. I'm kind of I'm going to grab the gusto per se. Do you find? The, I, I know it's not two sides of your brain, but the, I guess the areas that are wine focused versus the area that that are beer focused. Do you find yourself merging the two, um, when it comes to either your writing, or what you want to experiment on, innovation wise, with what eventually goes into a a bottle or a can? Gosh, you know, I, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I use a lot of the same. Uh, you know, skills when I'm trying to taste products and see whether it's wine or beer or whatever, what, what seems to be working. Um, I think that, uh, I think that wine, the structure of wine from the acidity and the, and the fruit characters and the aromatics, um, all of those skills apply to beer, but that the beer drinker tends to not think of that that way. So I think that in some respects, my appreciation of wine has improved my ability to look at um, uh, at beer from a, at least a subjective qualitative approach. Um, uh, I, I mean, I encourage, you know, it, 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 if you consume alcoholic beverages, I encourage people to try lots of things um, and under also understand that, you know, over time, your your palate and your interests will change. So there are certainly beers that I didn't have a, a lot of respect for years ago that I've now really come to have a lot more respect for. Um, uh, so, it, you know, what's a good example and, of that? Um, well, I, I mean, in the early, in the early, uh, age of craft beer in the, uh, in the really early nineties, maybe slightly late eighties, you know, if you were, if you were an American brewer or American "Quote unquote beer geek." Um, I mean, it was all about aromatic hops and and um, and pale ales with the roasty malt character and all the rest of that stuff. Um, and I, you know, I've gotten to the point now where I like all those, but uh, and I still like a good IPA. But I've just got a much greater appreciation for just a classic pilsner. Yeah, because it's a it's just a good drink. So here's a funny story for you. Um, I guess about a year and a half ago, um, I was doing an in-store sampling and I get a phone call from the guy who's the executive director for our local, uh, brewers association. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, there was a brewers association function that was taking place that day, but I, I hadn't planned on being there because I was doing this store sampling. Um, and he called me up and said, are, are you going to the, I forget what the name of the event was. And I said, no, Kevin, I'm doing this. And he says, you should be there. And I said, why? He says, just be there. Well, that was when, when they were going to announce the, you know, the Maryland Brewers Association 
you know, awards for, for beer for the year. And so I show up and our Pilsner gets the best in show. Oh. Now I was flabbergasted because in the era of triple jalapeno, peanut butter, chocolate porter, how does a goddamn Pilsner get the best in show? And I think that kind of underscores what I was saying before is that, is that sometimes people just want a good beer. So. You still do in-store tasting or back when in-store tastings were a thing? Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm a big believer in it. I mean, I do uh, – I probably do when you can do them again, at least two a month. Um, and, and I you know, I have – I get people coming to me sometimes who say, why are you doing that? Well, that's – yeah. Well, it, it's it, – it, there's two – couple of reasons. One, um, I, I think – and obviously I'm going to be focusing them more on, on key retailers, but uh, – I, I think it makes an impression on a key retailer that I'm still out there getting dirt under my fingernails. Uh, and, and secondly, and this is, this is, I think really the, for me where the rubber meets the road is if I'm standing in a store handing out samples, I get to watch what people are buying and you will understand what the, where the market's going a whole lot better. If you stand in a retail place and watch when they're buying than anything you can read in the trades. I don't disagree with that. Um, so I get I get value out of it. Um, plus, fact, I get some good good joke material from time to time. <laughs> I want to bring this back to where we started. Um, okay. With the tap room, and it's been closed now for 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 a couple months. Um, yeah. I I know you're a forward looking guy. Uh, there's a vaccine or a couple on the horizon. There's uh, hope that things will get back to, to how they were um, for, for a lot of us. Do you think your in-person experience is going to be different post COVID? Do you think the I'm tap sure room? I know will, exactly what you mean. Do, will the tap room be, do, do you feel like it'll be different going forward? Are, are you thinking about making adjustments? Are you thinking about well, we're, you know, we had already had we already had plans on doing some things, uh, you know, doing some work in the tap room to to make the space a little more comfortable and a little more user friendly per se. Uh, so so we're going to continue to to do those developments. I I just personally think that and I think we touched on this earlier. Um, there's a huge amount, I believe, of pent-up demand. People are just so sick and tired of being told, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. And they're so sick and tired of being afraid um, that I think, you know, once the gloves come off, I think there's a whole lot of people who just want to get back together. And I, I do believe that um, if, you're, if you're a beer fan, brewery tap rooms uh, – there's something wonderfully authentic about it. You know, here I, I am right now where they make this product that's that I'm drinking right in front of me. Yeah. And whether it's, you know, a super pretty tap room. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the Guinness guys around the corner from us are killing it. Um, you know, but, but that, but it's almost like Disneyland. And I say that with all due respect and, uh, Oh, and it's like impressive. Folks, yeah. It's extremely impressive. Um, but then we have people who then come because we're a mile and a quarter away who then come over and see us and say, that's impressive. I will go there again. But when I come here, it's authentic. Interesting. Uh, and it's like I said, it's not a dig on anybody. It's just ours is a little bit more, you know, lower scale. And, you know, I mean, you, you see us, uh, you know, warts and all. Well, I will say uh, your 25th anniversary is going to be marked by a live Facebook Q&A with yourself and Jim McGreevy, who's the president and CEO of the Beer Institute. Uh, that's happening at 5 o'clock Eastern on the 4th, which Friday. I think is Thursday or Friday? Uh, Friday. Friday of this week. And then I imagine there'll be a replay on your Facebook page afterwards for folks who listen to this after uh, after that happened. But um Hugh, thanks for your insight. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for 25 years of memories. Uh, hell, John, it's always a pleasure. You know that. I look forward to seeing you again live and in person one of these days soon. Same here.
That's Chief Sisson of Heavy Seas Brewing. If you live in the distribution footprint of the brewery, head out this week and safely pick up a six-pack to toast their milestone. The beer is a great reward. And a bit of housekeeping. Make sure to head over to Facebook and join the This Week in Roush Beer group. There's always something smoky going on. And if beer audio is your thing, make sure you listen to the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch for deep dive conversations with interesting brewery owners and more. And also, head over to BeerEdge.com for articles and to sign up for our newsletter. Every Monday, look for new episodes of Steal This Beer, and once a month, you should download the BYO Nano podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe to this show and to leave a review. You can always reach me via email at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or you can find me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Schweber does the music. He's got a new album out called Gaps, and you can find him at nateschweber.bandcamp.com. Jeff Quinn designed our logo. All right, before we go, and as promised, Sean Sasser, he is the director of Brewing for Cigar City Brewing Company, which is this episode's sponsor. He's back with me on the phone, and we're talking about Florida Man, the double IPA from the brewery. And Sean, the beer has evolved since it was first released, and I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was and what it's become that we can all now drink and enjoy today. Well, just like uh, Florida Man himself, it's gone through a lot of changes and kind of adapted with the times. And so early on in its days, it was more of a West Coast style double IPA, a lot maltier, a lot more bitter with more of a grassy cush note to it. Now it's a bit more in between a, a hazy and a, a West Coast double IPA. So a lot more mango, a lot more tropical, a lot more citrus, uh, a little bit less bitterness, but still enough to let you know it's a double IPA. Hit us with the stats on this beer. It's a... Uh, Eight and a half percent alcohol by volume and 50 IBUs. Awesome. And it's available where Cigar City beers are available. If you want to know more about Florida Man and all of the other Cigar City Brewing beers, you can check out CigarCityBrewing.com. Sean, thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm John Hall. New episodes of this show reliably drop every Wednesday. And that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>